Hey friends, I'm Christine Chappell and you're listening to the Hope and Help podcast from IBCD, where we host biblical conversations about life's challenging problems. In today's episode, we chat with Scott Mill about his book, Loving Messy People, A Messy Art of Helping One Another Become More Like Jesus. For more help on this topic, visit ibcd.org forward slash hope and help, where you can access notes from today's episode and browse related resources from our digital library. Before we get started, let me introduce you to our guest, Scott Mill, pastors Cornerstone Church of West LA. His ministry focuses include preaching, teaching, counseling, and church-wide vision. He is a regular writer and speaker on topics related to practical theology. He's also a certified counselor with the Association of Certified Biblical Counselors and an adjunct faculty member at Eternity Bible College. Scott lives in Culver City, California with his wife and four children. Hey there, Scott. Thanks so much for joining us for the show today. Yeah, it's good to be with you, Christine. Before we get started in our conversation, would you spend a few minutes sharing about why you wanted to write this book and who you are trying to help? Yeah, absolutely. So really, this came out of the equipping we've been doing here at Cornerstone Church of West LA for the last really over a decade. I mean, the the goal kind of all along has been to equip everyday Christians with the tools to help one another navigate the various messes of life. When I first planted this church maybe 15 years ago, one of the things that I realized pretty quickly was that I I desperately needed more equipping in just one another care and how to how to counsel, how to shepherd, how to deal with the reality of the the messes in in people's lives. Even more so than that, I realized that even when I knew how to do it, I didn't know how to help anyone else help each other. In the church, God's call is for more than just pastors to be the sole place of ministry, but he, he calls all of us into the lives of one another. And I didn't really know how to help other people do that. And so as we dug into the word together, both as a church and as I dug into it deeper personally, a lot of the stuff that's in this book came out of asking those questions. What do we do? What is God calling us to do? How does he want to deal with all these messes in our lives, in in my life, in my heart, in the hearts of those around me, in the lives of those around me? And the more we saw people's hearts captivated by the love of God, by the power of the gospel, and the more and more we continue to see people transformed in the midst of their suffering and from their sin. That was something that it just wanted to share with more and more people, more and more churches that I know sometimes are asking those same questions. Well, I'm just super excited for this material that you present in the book. Number one, because it's a passion of mine, and I personally have benefited from my own church's desire to kind of stand in that gap and really follow the call that is in Ephesians 4 about the pastors and the teachers. You know, part of their mission is to equip the saints for ministry. And I really feel like the book that you've put together with Loving Messy People does take away some of that guesswork as to how we even get started in something like that. Early in the book, you write, quote, your mess doesn't disqualify you from being used by God. In fact, it makes you more qualified. I know I've personally wrestled with believing that I'm not qualified enough to serve God, and I'm sure that other people have as well. So why do you think God's design for one another care and ministry isn't exclusive to only the paid professionals and trained experts? Really, that's such a good question. The, The reality is, I think, for a number of reasons. And first of all, 
the reality is there aren't enough paid professionals and trained experts for all of the needs in the body of Christ, for all of the messes, because the reality is that every single one of our lives has all sorts of struggles and hurts. And there's not enough professionals in the world, especially biblical professionals in the world, to address all of that. But I I actually don't think that's necessarily a problem with the system. I think that's part of how God has designed it, Um, because God has always loved to use the weak things in the world to display his glory. He always loves to use the weak in the world to shame the strong. And I think he loves to use us, even in the midst of our own messes, to serve and love and care for those around us. And and I think that it's actually one of the lies, one of the most significant lies of the enemy that convinces us that God can't use us, Mm -hmm. right? That because of maybe what we've done, maybe because of even what we're struggling with, that we're somehow disqualified to be used by him in the lives of those around us. This is a part of God's design for the redemption of his body is for those of us who've received Christ, been redeemed and renewed by Christ, we are the priesthood of believers. Like together we're the the priesthood and God wants to use every single one of us in the lives of those around us. And so I think oftentimes it's actually the messes, one of the ways, one of the significant ways that God redeems the messes in our own lives and the struggles in our own lives is by using those same areas and then the insight gained and the transformation that he does and even just the understanding we have having gone through that to minister to, to care for um, other people that are going through similar struggles or who are hurting similarly. As you were talking, I was just thinking back at just the whole narrative of the Bible and person after person after person that the Lord uses in the history of redemption is a weak and flawed sinner with a past, with a history, with failures and flaws and weaknesses all their own. And it's part of, like you said, God's design and just showing that, look, he is big enough to redeem even the weak and feeble things of this world in a way that demonstrates his sufficiency and his strength and his glory, not in a way that would make us tempted to think that we had anything to boast in in our own efforts. I don't think we like that. Like, I don't think we're comfortable with that because I think we live in a, in a world and even in our flesh where, where we, we do want a little bit of the glory, right? We want our ability to minister to, to care for others, to be or something that reflects our strength, something that reflects positively on us, something that, that shows people how maybe strong we are, or how well we have it together, or how, what an impact we can have on others. But the reality is God isn't after developing it and displaying our glory. He's after displaying his glory. And so, which is why he, he does, I think, loves to use us when we're weak and even in areas of our weakness um, so that it can show how great his redemptive work is. I was actually in our small group this past week. We were reading in Judges 7 when Gideon is basically his army is whittled down to 300 chosen men from an army of 32,000. The Lord comes to him and says, the people who are with you are too many for me to give Midian into their hands for Israel would become boastful saying, my own power has delivered me. So there the Lord is speaking with Gideon and basically saying, hey, I know you've got this great big army to go into battle, but actually, if you succeed with these 32,000 men, you're going to boast in yourself and think that you did it. 
in your own strength. And so you need to whittle down your army to 300. And it was a really fascinating narrative that I think I've just skimmed over before and never really understood the significance of what God was trying to communicate to Gideon in that Mm. moment. But I think it's just an illustration based on what we're talking about of just God delights to show himself strong in our weaknesses. It makes me think of 2 Corinthians 11, right, where he says, if I must boast, I will boast of the things that show my weakness, mm. right? And I think that no matter what it's in, no matter what area of, of life, God desires for us to boast in the things that show our weakness, to to be used by him in uh, the lives of one another, even when we feel like, well, gosh, I, I'm not smart enough. I'm not wise enough. I, I don't know where to start or, or what mm-hmm. to say. He wants to step in and show how great he can be in the midst of that context. Well, I love in the book when you wrote, quote, those around you are suffering. It's not up to them to find comfort on their own. I thought that was such a powerful statement. Can you talk more about God's design for dispensing his comforts through the body of Christ? Yeah, absolutely. I think this actually really hits on helping us to even define what one another care and and ministry to one another actually is. Because caring for one another isn't only about addressing sin in one another's lives. I mean, it definitely involves addressing sin in one another's lives, but it also involves addressing suffering as well. And it makes me think of, of 2 Corinthians 1. It says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies and God of all comfort, who comforts us in all our affliction so that we may be able to comfort those who are in any affliction with the comfort with which we ourselves are comforted by God. And God is calling us into relationships where he wants to use us as the agents of his comfort, the agents of, of his comfort to those around us. And, and when people say, you know, I, I wish God was just standing there and, and I could like see him face to face or I could hear his voice audibly or I could just be held by him, I think in a very real sense, God calls us to be his hands and his feet in the church, to be the ones who are sitting there speaking his word, uh, speaking his encouragement, speaking his hope, the ones that are sitting there that, that people can see, oh, look, I'm not alone. Even if I this person that's seeking to minister to me isn't saying anything, that they're here, I can see them, right? That, to, to be the people that will hold others while they weep. When God in, doesn't exist here in physical form right now, he, he's left us here to be that kind of comfort for one another um, with the kind of comfort that he's shown us in all sorts of different ways, most significantly through other people and through other people speaking the truth into our struggles and our hurts as well. Yeah, I love to reflect on that Second Corinthians passage and just think that we are built to be conduits of comfort. And I actually looked up the definition of the word conduit because I use it a lot in this context. And I'm like, I should probably know exactly what that means. And a conduit, the root of it actually comes from the idea of a pipe, you know, so a water pipe mm. or something, something mm-hmm. that is a pass through. And so I can't help but think we are called to be conduits of comfort. Basically, we're like pipes where Christ, the living water himself, funnels through us and out into other people. And we're just passing him along. We're passing along the comforts we received. We're passing along gospel truths that have taken root in our heart and have ministered to us in our pains. And so I just love that idea of God's design for one another care. And also to think of it, you know, in a negative way, when we 
don't want to be that conduit and we want to hoard all of God's comforts just to think of the people who suffer because we're not willing to step up to the call and really Mm. love one another in the context of the local church in the way that God has called and designed for us to do so. What are some of the reasons why Christians might hesitate to care for someone else in the middle of their sin or suffering? Yeah, I mean, I I think there's, for for each one of us, there's obviously kind of our own tendencies and the things that get in the way. But I think there are some things that we see common in the midst of the church. And really, one of those is just busyness. I think oftentimes people say, like, I I just don't have the time to engage with other people, especially other people's messes, because I've I've got everything else that I've got going on in life. And, and, And while I think that's a very real reality, we are all finite beings, and we can only do so much. We're not called to be everything to everyone. But we are called to be engaged deeply with some people. And I think if if we're too busy for interpersonal ministry at all, Mm -hmm. uh, for loving and caring for the people that God's placed around us, the the bottom line is we're too busy, right? Like we, We need to look at all the different various callings God has given us and seek to be faithful in all of them, and all the while recognizing our finitude, the, the fact that we can't do everything. But I think maybe more internally, another thing that gets in the way is just our self-focus. I think it's easy to walk through life focusing on ourselves, on our own messes, and not looking for the ways that God desires for us to care and be used in the lives of those around us. And actually, I think related to both of these is what I call trellis work. Mm -hmm. Um, This is kind of a concept from uh, the book, The Trellis and the Vine. If the church is a growing organism, you know, like a vine that grows, then caring for one another interpersonally is, that's the vine growing. That's the pruning that needs to take place. But the church especially the church as an organization, has all sorts of, of programs, right? And mm-hmm. programs are kind of like a trellis, right? They, they, they are at their best. They help the vine to grow healthy. But I think sometimes in the midst of the church, we can become so consumed with making elaborate trellises mm-hmm. that everyone's so busy volunteering with all the different children's programs and outreach programs and worship programs. And there's all this volunteering going on, which is great, but there's not actually interpersonal ministry going on. And so, you know, I think that we need clarity to see that volunteering at church, well, as great as that is, like God's calling us to something deeper. He does want us to serve one another, but he he also wants us to serve one another interpersonally, to be deeply involved in one another's lives. But really, I think ultimately the biggest hindrance I see that gets in the way that causes people to hesitate to engage in one another's messes is really simply just a lack of confidence. Mm -hmm. I I think most Christians feel like, I don't know what to do. I don't know where to start. I don't know what to say to them. I don't know what Bible verse to use. And so I feel like I'm not going to do anything. But I think every single Christian, if they know the gospel, has the truth, has the hope that it can minister powerfully to people in the midst of their struggles, whether it's a struggle with sin or it's a struggle with suffering. The reality is most of the time, most of the time when we're struggling, when we're hurting, the things that we need aren't new information. The things we need are just reminders of the truth that maybe we've heard before, maybe we've learned before, maybe we even know intellectually, but we're just really tempted to forget. And this is why Hebrews talks about the importance of exhorting one another every day, as long as it's called today. Like we we need to have people exhorting us every single day. We need to be reminded. We need our minds renewed every single day. And I think people lack confidence because they 
feel like, you know, I don't have anything new to tell you. You, mm-hmm. you know the answers, so why would I tell them to you? But this is God's design for us to be exhorting one another every day, for us to be reminding one another every day, because every single one of us every day needs our minds renewed with the truth, especially when we're caught in the, the mess and the cycles of suffering and sin. I don't know who said it, and so this is not my quote. It could be Paul David Tripp or somewhere else I got it from, but just what you were talking about, well, we don't need new truths. And I think the quote goes something like, we don't need new truths. We need old truths freshly applied. And mm, That's you know, exactly it. Is that, yeah. is that the right? Yeah. <laughs> I'm like, I don't remember I don't, I don't where that came well, from. I don't, know, I don't know what the quote is. Okay. <laughs> but I think the truth is exactly right. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So whoever said that, thank you. It's it's buried in my heart, although I don't know who to give proper credit to. But whoa, I do. Wait, 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 wait. wait. So, 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 so let me stop you there. Because okay. this is actually, I think, a perfect example. A perfect example of what we were talking about earlier with comfort, right? How God wants to use us as a conduit with for comfort. Uh-huh. How God wants to use us as a conduit for him, for his comfort, for who he is. My hope hope is that in all one another ministry, that constantly people would forget who it was that actually delivered the comfort. (laughs) And what they remember is that God provided for them. What they remember is that God came through and showed them hope in the midst of the darkness. And, And because I think in our weakness, God's design is for us to be forgotten, is for, mm-hmm. for our credit to be to fade away as his glory is revealed and is reminded. And I, that's been my prayer, actually, even with this book over and over again. My, my hope is that God might use it as a catalyst in people's lives to be like, oh, yeah, this is real. God's truth is deep and it's practical and it applies to the depth of of my life. It applies to everything I'm experiencing and that, you know, a year, two years more than that down the road, the people who read it and that were shaped by it would totally forget me, <laughs> right? Would totally forget where they read it. This truth about God that's gone deep in your heart that you forgot what earthly source to give credit to. Like, I, I think that's, I honestly believe that's the author's goal. Yeah. Because that means he showed you Christ. Mm-hmm. And he showed you Christ. He was a conduit, or she was a conduit, showed you Christ. And that's what captivated your heart. That's what you remember. And, you know, the earthly source, whether it's in a book form or whether it's in just a personal conversation form, I think that, and that's why we can have confidence because it's not all about us. We aren't the ultimate hope. We aren't the the ultimate promise for people. We aren't their savior. They, mm-hmm. They've already got one of those and it's it's he's way better than us. Right. Um, but we are a conduit that in particular moments he wants to use to deliver his truth and his hope in the midst of the of the suffering. And so anyways, I just I think it's, it was just a beautiful <laughs> example of that and and exactly what I think personal ministry in every form is supposed to be. Well, thank you. I, I threw a softball up for you and you hit it out of the park. So great job. <laughs> <laughs> no, that was really neat to make that connection. I appreciated when you introduced the goal of one another care in the book. I think it's easy to conclude that if somebody has a mess of sin or suffering in their life, then the burden becomes, okay, how do I fix that problem for that person? And because so many of us feel ill-equipped to offer meaningful solutions to challenging, nuanced problems, we shy away from hurting people altogether. Can you clarify how the gospel reorients our goals in one another care, thereby making soul care something that every believer in Christ can participate in on one level or another? Yeah, I mean, I think that the gospel 
shows us God's goal for personal ministry and really God's goal for our lives. And then when we step in, and even when people are struggling and, and you step into that struggle with them, their goal most often is going to be, I just want you to fix this, right? I just want you to make it go away. And very quickly, your goal can be, okay, I'm just going to try to fix this. I'm going to try to figure out a way to, to make it go away. The problem is we're not empowered to do that. <laughs> um, now we can oftentimes care for them in ways that helps to alleviate suffering, that brings comfort, that can show them the way forward out of sin. But God's goal is something deeper and greater and something that's beyond what we can do ourselves, right? God's goal through the gospel is transformation, is gospel-motivated transformation. It is gospel-motivated transformation into becoming more and more like Christ. And the reality is that it's only biblical transformation that can help us become more like Jesus. And it's only biblical transformation that is empowered by the Spirit of God that dwells in every single believer. And really, it's only biblical transformation that helps us to grow in our relationship with Christ, getting to know him more, having the, the capacity to understand his grace and his love and his glory and his awesomeness and uh, more and more and more in our, in our lives. And so he wants to draw us closer to him interpersonally. And through that relationship, he wants to transform us more and more into Christ. And to the extent that our personal ministry is after a different goal than that, we are going to be frustrated. But when we remember the gospel, and when we remember the goal of the gospel in pointing people to Christ and helping them be, to become more and more like Christ, it shapes what we do and reminds us of the whole purpose God has placed us together in the body of Christ, which is so that together we can grow, as Ephesians 4 talks about, to the measure of the stature and the fullness of Christ. If you're a note taker, I just want to point out something that Scott said that rhymed. I'm not sure if you did it on purpose or not, but you said something to the effect of the gospel shows us God's goal. So the gospel and God's goal, like I think that just is a really neat way to remember <laughs> that when we are ministering the gospel to other people, that we are to remember what God's goal is. And so thank you for that. Yeah, <laughs> That's absolutely. a really great note. In the book, you offer a structure that gives us some idea of how we might begin to become better ministers of the gospel to one another. Can you share what that framework for gospel care looks like in a broad sense? The definition I, I use in the book is gospel care is the God-exalting, grace-saturated art of loving another person through, and, and here's kind of, I think, the structure. We, we love one another through patiently knowing, sacrificially serving, truthfully speaking, and consistently applying the gospel in order to help them become more like Jesus. And really, it's that framework, most simply, patiently knowing no, serve, speak, and gospel. If using gospel as a verb is nails on the chalkboard for you, you, you I defend it in the book, but um, <laughs> I, I, can't, I can't take the time, time to do it now. But I think it's important because we've been, uh, as Christians, well, as Christians, we've been making nouns into verbs ever since scripture was written and gospels used as a verb multiple times in scripture itself. But in order to care for one another, I think so many of us get completely overwhelmed with all the different things we're supposed to do, right? If you read through the New Testament, there's just all these different one another commands. And you're like, how do I like keep that in my mind? You know, like, do I like write it on my forearm and just check? Okay, check, check, check. I'm doing all of these things. But I, I was trying to think through a and find a simple way to summarize all the things that we're called to do 
in loving and caring for one another. And this is kind of the four words that I think everything falls into that summarizes the biblical call. And it's, it starts with knowing one another, mm-hmm. taking the time to actually listen and understand the person you're caring for before you do anything, before you say anything, because otherwise we're just speaking to hear ourselves talk. If we we genuinely love people, it starts with knowing them. And and then secondly, serving them, actually caring for them practically. Um, I think too often personal ministry and particularly biblical counseling has often taken the world's format of talk therapy mm-hmm. and assumed that biblical counseling was simply a talking ministry, but that we, we really don't have any category for that in scripture, for a ministry that only uses words. We're always called to love in action in addition to our words, to, to not only speak the gospel, but to demonstrate and, and make manifest the gospel um, in our love for others. And so we, we start by knowing others and it involves serving others. And, and at the same time, it does involve speaking to one another, speaking truth in love speaking truth wisely into each unique situation. Finally, gospeling is just the reminder, the renewal of the mind. We've been talking about Romans 12 or Ephesians 4, when they talk about renewing the mind. What we're renewing the mind with is gospel truth, is the truth about who God is, what he's done, who we are, what he's done for us, and what that means for our lives. And then in light of that truth, being called to live lives worthy of that calling, as it talks about in Ephesians 4.1, right? We're called to live lives that are consistent with who God has declared us to be in Christ. And, and all of that flows out of reminders of the gospel and reminders to live in li- lives that are consistent with the gospel. Well, there's a section in your book where you help readers to consider what's most needed in the context of helping people with their problems, whatever those problems might be. You say that the most common question you get asked in phone calls, emails, classrooms, and all sorts of other contexts is something to the effect of, quote, what would you say to someone who, and then fill in the blank, is struggling with XYZ or is caught in this transgression? Will you share how you answer this question and what the importance of consistency consideration has to do with some first steps in moving toward a person's mess? Yeah, absolutely. The reality is when people ask a question like that, you know, what would you say to someone or or what Bible verse would you use when when somebody's struggling this way? I mean, the first thing is I, I always tell them there's no simple answer because there's not a simple answer. I try to ask more questions, right? I try to understand even the situation they're describing to me a little bit better. And I may offer some helpful verses or thoughts that could be potential options, maybe some some different verses or places to go to, whether it's in the Psalms or whether it's in the New Testament. But I, what I do is I actually talk a lot with them about the importance of just considering what's most needed in any given moment. Because every single person is unique, every situation is unique, and even every relational moment in every relationship is unique. And the same truth, the same Bible verse that might be exactly what's needed at three o'clock on a Wednesday may not be what's needed at midnight two days later on Friday. Mm-hmm. And it, it takes a lot of wisdom to know how and what to offer when. But the beautiful thing is that God promises us that if we pray to him and ask him for wisdom, that he will grant it. And, and I think that People who know 
the Word of God, who are reading it daily, people who know other people and have friendships that, that, that understand the reality of the other person's life, they are already well-equipped to speak truth into that person's life. They don't necessarily need like a, a key verse for me or, a, or you, they don't need to know what I would tell a hypothetical person. They just before the Lord prayerfully need to ask what, with what I know about the gospel, with what I know about truth, with what I know about who God is, what does this person need to hear in this particular moment? And as they do so prayerfully and and humbly, I trust God's going to use that act of love powerfully. We are weak and limited in that we need to be okay with that when it comes to walking alongside other people, lest we be tempted to think we must come and minister to someone with answers. We have to come bringing, I've got my two bags of biblical solutions on my shoulders and we're going to fix this problem. Again, going back to the gospel, what is God's goal for this person in this situation? And that takes so much of a weight off that we're not coming in to be someone's savior. We're coming in to show love and compassion or coming in to speak a, a hard word in a moment where a rebuke is needed, but in in truth and love and in grace, but mostly just to understand what that person is experiencing. And then, like you said, being wise and trying to discern what is the most important thing they need to hear at this moment, because sometimes those hard conversations in the midst of someone's suffering is not what's needed. They need compassion. They need a yeah. ministry of presence, perhaps, yeah. of you sitting in ashes with them and crying and weeping with those who weep. Yeah, exactly. And, and I don't want to downplay being prepared. Like, I think it, it, it makes a lot of sense to go into any given situation with some Bible verses in mind, right. with some things that they might need to hear in mind, but but to go in with them with an open hand asking, mm-hmm. what does this person actually need right now? With a listening ear that's trying to figure that out instead of going and just kind of waiting for your turn to deliver the things that you've already prepared, <laughs> yeah. you know, which I, which I think is, is tempting because it feels simpler. Mm-hmm. You know, it feels easier. It feels less, uh, less dangerous than standing in the moment and going, God, help me. Right. Uh, Lord, how can, how do you want to use me in the midst of this? Lord, will you grant me wisdom? Will you grant me insight? Will you grant me ears to hear? But the reality is when we want to just deliver our message, we want to deliver our preparation. Again, it can very subtly be a way that we're actually being tempted to deliver to other people ourselves Mm. and for us to be in our logic and our planning to be their hope when God just wants us to point them again and again and again back to him, to the reality and the promises of Christ. Well, there may be pastors, elders, or church leaders listening to this interview today, and they recognize the need for soul care in the local church, but they have no idea what is even involved in getting a ministry like that started. Maybe the task sounds really daunting to them. Would you share some insights as to how those leaders might begin to pursue a plan of implementing an intentional soul care strategy in their church? I love this question. I, I love this question because I think it is so common and I think it just hits the nail on the head with, with so many struggles, not just for people in the midst of the church, but for pastors as well. And so speaking specifically to pastors, I think step one, I'd say, make sure you're doing intentional soul care yourself, right? Because you, you can't teach what you don't know. Now, number one, you, you need to be growing closer to Christ continually yourself. You mean drawing yourself closer to him, having your mind renewed regularly as well. But also you need to be engaging with those in your church, 
interpersonally, not with everyone because you don't have capacity for that. You're finite as well. But it, it, being involved in interpersonal ministry yourself is, I think, the very first step to being able to equip a church to do soul care with one another. Secondly, I just encourage pastors to prioritize leadership development and the discipleship and the equipping of disciplers. I think sometimes that means hard decisions. Sometimes that means trying to figure out how to prioritize your time in the midst of a lot of soul care needs. A lot of my co-pastors here, these are things we've wrestled through a lot and come back to again and again and again, that we, we need to be making sure that we're investing time in leadership development so that um, we can equip people to care for one another, to equip one another, to care for one another in the church as a whole. And, and so prioritizing that in the life of the church is also just incredibly important. Third, one of the most helpful things that I've done is just asking my leaders where the needs are. Mm -hmm. Instead of just assuming where the needs are, instead of assuming kind of what people need to be equipped in or even what the struggles in the midst of the church are, I think I shouldn't assume that I know everyone or know what the church needs best. I need to ask other key leaders in the church, you know, what, where are the needs? Where are the pain points? And if you're going to teach people how to listen on an interpersonal level, it starts with being a listener on an organizational level, on a church-wide level as well. Fourthly, I think that there are a ton of great resources available throughout the biblical counseling movement. You know, if you don't know where to start, or maybe you hear, oh, there's these particular issues that I just keep hearing coming up over and over and over again in our church, get equipped to address those particular issues. There's so many resources available in the biblical counseling movement. Um, go through a book on those specific topics with some of your leaders or with um, small group leaders or with a staff or or even just with a group of elders or just a handful of people that want to care for others. That's really why I, I wrote Loving Messy People too, I, so that pastors could go through it with some of their people together as a first step for their church. I and mean, my hope is that it wouldn't be the last step. I don't think it even comes close to, to, to answering all of the questions, but it might begin to give a paradigm for how to care for one another in the midst of the church. And, and that's where I think as pastors too, just as we're telling people that they can have confidence in what God's doing in their life and they don't have to do it perfectly to do something. I think the same is true with us as pastors. I don't, do this perfectly in our church. I'm still continually learning. I'm still continually trying to figure out how to equip our church more and more effectively, how to address the things that they really are struggling with. And that's a that's a journey. That's an interpersonal journey. That's a, that's a journey that shifts and changes every few years as the church grows and shifts and and, and changes and the and the needs change as well. And so I mean it's a journey we're we're definitely all on together. Well, Scott, we've got time for one more question on the show. So I would like to invite you to do something I ask every guest on the Hope and Help podcast to do, which is to speak directly to the audience. There may be someone listening to this episode who is currently caring for someone in their life facing a challenging problem. Maybe they feel ill-equipped for the challenge and they realize that some of the things that they have said and done in the past have been unhelpful. They've run out of words to say or things to do and they really aren't sure how to best love this person in the midst of their mess. What would you say to this listener to give them the courage they need to trust that the hope and help of the gospel is sufficient to empower them to love and care for that messy person well? 
if that's you, if there are people in your life who are struggling with sin, who are hurting in the midst of suffering, and you don't exactly know what to do, you, you don't know where to start, you, you feel ill-equipped, the reality is I, I can't give you the empowerment to make sure that you do that. But I want to remind you that, that God can. And not only that he can, but that he does, that he has placed you in those people's lives on purpose. That it's, it's not an accident that you see the hurts that you see. It's not an accident that you see the sin that you see. And God wants to use you in their life. And I don't want to say anything even any more specific than that. I think God wants to use you in their life. He, he doesn't want you to be their everything. He wants to be their everything. He, he doesn't want you to be their salvation. He wants to be their salvation, but he does want to use you to point them back to him, to remind them of the truth in his word, to remind them of the power and the hope of the gospel, the power and the hope of the gospel for the redemption of their suffering, the power and the hope of the gospel for the forgiveness and redemption of their sin. And what God is calling you to do isn't to fix them, isn't to save them, isn't to be their everything, but God is explicitly in his word calling you to love them. And so I, I just want to encourage you to, even with all the fear and the struggles and the lack of confidence that you might be feeling, to step out in faith, trusting that as you strive to love those people, God is going to provide for you. He's going to give you wisdom. He's going to give you courage. He's going to give you boldness. And he's going to show you his love so that you can love those around you with the love that you have received first from Christ. Well, Scott, I am just so thankful to have had this conversation with you today. I personally have been so encouraged by the insights that you share in your book and even through this conversation. So thank you so much for that. If there is a listener who is interested in learning more about your ministry and all the activity you have going on, is there someplace online that they can go to connect with you? Yeah, I mean, probably the, the easiest place is just our church website. Um, that's cornerstonewla.org. That's Cornerstone Church of West Los Angeles. And so it's cornerstonewla.org. Um, you can connect with me there. I'm on the major social media channels as well. I don't live there because I don't, I'm not sure it's a healthy place to live, but <laughs> I am on there and, and I'm happy to, would love to connect. Um, the book's uh, available on Amazon and at Shepherd Press as well. Love the opportunity to connect and help however we can. Well, if you are interested in getting connected with Scott or even in checking out his brand new book, Loving Messy People, The Messy Art of Helping One Another Become More Like Jesus, scroll down in the show notes, click the link there, and it will take you to the page where you can access all of the links that we're talking about. Well, again, Scott, thank you so much for joining us on the show today. I really hope that people are encouraged and equipped through this conversation. But more than that, I hope that they will buy a copy of this book. This is a really great resource that can help start the beginning of a soul care ministry in a local church body. So thanks again so much for working on the book and for showing up on the podcast to chat about it today. Absolutely. Thanks so much for having me, Christine. This is so enjoyable to get to, to spend the time with you. Before we let you go, I'd like to remind you to visit ibcd.org forward slash hope and help. There you can check out the show notes from today's episode. If you enjoyed today's conversation, why not subscribe to the podcast? That way you'll be notified when new weekly episodes release. Also, please don't keep the Hope and Help podcast a secret. If you know someone who could be encouraged by listening to this episode, please do them a favor by sharing it. 
Thanks so much for listening to today's show. Be sure to join us next time on the Hope and Help podcast.